good morning. Great to be with everyone today and open God's Word together. Um, Psalm 26, we're working our way through the Psalter. Um, as many of you know, we're, we're going through book one of the Psalms, which is chapter 1 through 41. So we're well beyond the halfway point, and we're getting closer to coming to an end in the book of Psalms for now. But Psalm 26 uh, is a beautiful prayer, and it's a very transparent prayer. And I think the most basic definition that most people have for prayer is petition. It's the idea that when we pray, we're asking God for something. So we're asking the Lord for uh, resources. We're asking the Lord for wisdom. We're asking the Lord to solve a problem or fix something in our life. So we're asking things. We're petitioning the Lord, and certainly that is a big part of our prayer life. But as we've learned together in the first 25 Psalms, uh, there's so much more to prayer. There's so many more things that go on in a healthy life of prayer than just asking for the things that we want. One important part of a prayer life is introspection, or you could say self-examination. Trying to understand what's really going on inside of you, looking at who you are and bringing yourself before the Lord to be examined for who you really are. The Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, in verse 5, he talks about this idea. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you. So Paul there is calling the church at Corinth to be circumspect, to be introspective, to look inward and really try to understand what's going on at the level of our hearts. David, throughout the Psalter, is calling on the Lord to examine and to test him and to help him see what's actually going on in here. Because, of course, we can actually deceive ourselves. Sometimes we don't fully grasp what's going on at the level of our heart. And so David is constantly trying to expose himself before the Lord and say, God, you test me, you look inward, you tell me what it is that you find here. Famously, in Psalm 139, David ends that beautiful chapter that beautiful prayer with this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, here in Psalm 26, David is bringing his life before the Lord. He's opening himself up. He's exposing himself. He's inviting the all-seeing eyes of God to scrutinize him and to find what David believes to be true about himself. He wants God to find a heart that is filled with integrity, a heart that is devoted to the Lord, that is loyal to the Lord, that is trusting in the Lord. I titled today's sermon, A Prayer of Examine. And David is certainly offering that sort of a prayer in this chapter. In the first three verses, David makes a declaration of integrity. He's going to come before the Lord and he's going to begin this prayer by declaring his integrity before God. Here's what he writes again. He says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. He's declaring this before the Lord. I've done this. I've walked in my integrity. He says, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. So prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. So he starts here and he says, vindicate me. 
Now, the Hebrew word there is generally translated, judge me. He's just asking the Lord to tell him what's really going on there. Lord, look at me and declare a judgment about what you find in my life. Now, for a lot of us, that seems like a scary prayer to offer to the Lord. Lord, judge me. Lord, tell me what you see in me. Because a lot of times, we think that what God is looking for is perfection. We think that God wants us to be perfect. And there's a reason for that. God does want us to be perfect. Right? The scriptures say that we need to be holy even as he is holy. So God wants that from us. But God doesn't expect that from us. That's the reason why Jesus came. God looks at the world and he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. So God's not looking at you in your imperfection and going, oh my gosh, I can't believe you. What's wrong with you? Why can't you get it together like so-and-so? Because guess what? There's no so-and-so out there. The only person who had it all together is Jesus himself. And so David knows that. In fact, David is able to say that he has walked in his integrity. Now, integrity is not a word that means faultlessness. It's not a word that means perfection. It's a word that means wholeness or completeness. It also has a nuance of sincerity. That David here is a man who can honestly say before the Lord, this isn't him putting on a front or being a hypocrite. He can honestly say, Lord, I am a person who sincerely wants to live a life of faithfulness to you and integrity before you, a life that is not, um, you know, me saying one thing over here and doing something else over here. It's a complete or whole life, an interconnected life that is filled with integrity. In other words, David is saying to the Lord, Lord, listen, I've, I've done my best to live a life that is consistent with your will. Again, not perfect, not perfectly obeying every commandment, but consistent with your will. Not only that, but David could say to the Lord that if God would judge him, if God would test him and examine him, God could find that David trusted in the Lord. That means that David was a man who walked by faith. He was not looking to his own resources, his own strength, his own godliness. His orientation of life and heart was such that he said, Lord, I'm trusting in you. I need you. I'm following you. You are the Lord of my life. And ultimately, a heart that is pleasing before the Lord is a heart that has these two things. A heart that is sincere before the Lord saying, God, I'm offering my life to you. I'm seeking to live according to your will because I trust in you. The, the decision to live a life of integrity, the decision to live a life of faithfulness is actually what it looks like to trust in the Lord. It's completely meaningless to say, Lord, I trust in you, but then not follow him. And so what God is looking for in the lives and in the hearts of people is a robust trust, not in ourselves, but a trust in him, which is demonstrated through a life of sincerity and wholeness, in short, a life of integrity. This is how David begins this prayer. Verse 2 was interesting because in verse 2, David uses the language that portrays God as a refiner of metals. That God is this person who is scrutinizing the purity of David's heart and mind to see what he can actually find there. Like uh, a sayer of metals who scrutinizes the 
degree of perfection in gold or silver or some other precious metal. David's saying, Lord, do that to me. See what you actually find there, Lord. See what's under the surface and what's really going on in my heart. And David's not afraid of this. That's why in verse 3, he's able to say, it's because God's steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. David's eyes are on God's steadfast love and David's heart is committed to living faithfully before the Lord. Now both of those expressions, steadfast love and walking in God's faithfulness are words that are associated with God's covenant. And so essentially David is saying, look Lord, when you test my heart, when you really see what's going on there, what you are going to find is that it is your love that is on my mind. And it is your covenant that I'm pursuing. I want to just live faithfully before you. So this psalm begins, as I've said, with this declaration of integrity. This is not self-righteousness. This is just David saying, Lord, this is where I'm at. And Lord, look and make sure that what I think is true is actually true in your eyes. But in verses 4 through 8 now, David's going to move from a declaration of integrity to a demonstration of integrity. As, as David's looking at and examining what's going on in his life, he can find fruit. He can find evidence that that integrity that he believes is there is, in fact, actually there. And he's going to, in these verses, give four different uh, things that he's pointing to that do demonstrate that integrity is what's going on in his heart. And the first thing is this, in verses 4 and 5, David can point to the fact that he avoids the wicked. That he avoids the wicked. In words reminiscent of Psalm 1, in verses 4 and 5, David demonstrates that he lives a life of integrity by pointing out what he avoids, or more specifically, who he avoids. Look at verses 4 and 5. David says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now, I said that this is reminiscent of Psalm chapter 1. You'll remember how that psalm begins in verse 1. David writes there, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. David, like every righteous person, has made a conscious decision about the kind of people that he would make his associates and his life companions. The type of people, the kind of people that David was committed to doing life with, that David was committed to surrounding himself with, were honest and sincere and righteous. Not men of falsehood, hypocrites, or evildoers, as he points out in verses 4 and 5. And make no mistake about it, you cannot be a person of integrity and godliness if your crew if the people that you are doing life with and building a life with are people who lack integrity. Again, not perfect people, but people whose hearts are committed to the Lord and to doing what's right before the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says it this way, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says it this way, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
The scriptures constantly call believers to come out from the world and to make our closest companions and the people that we are building our lives with and together, together with are people who love God and fear God and are pursuing righteousness. Now, of course, we can't overdo this. We're, we're not trying to insulate ourselves entirely from the world and build our own little holier-than-thou club here at the church. That's not the point. We are supposed to have relationships with non-Christians. We're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be serving and ministering to non-believers. In fact, Jesus himself was called a friend of sinners. But it's important for us to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus was a friend of sinners? It means two things. At the deepest level, it speaks of Jesus' humility and his love. Here's what I mean. Although sinless himself, Jesus condescends to sinful humanity to befriend us. The fact that Jesus is a friend of any human being means that he is a friend of sinners. All of us are sinners. And so, again, Jesus in his humility and love condescends at the incarnation and he comes here to befriend us, which is amazing. But also at the surface level, the idea that Jesus is a friend to sinners, or a friend of sinners, means that Jesus was friendly to all people, saint and sinner alike. Jesus allowed evil people to approach him. Jesus ministered to people that were caught up in all sorts of sin. But in saying that, we need to remember that even though Jesus ministered to people, even though Jesus was kind to everybody, even though Jesus loved people of all different backgrounds, that does not mean that Jesus was in deep, committed, continual relationships with the ungodly. And sometimes people take this idea that Jesus was a friend of sinners to dismiss everything else that the Bible says about who it is that we should make our closest companions and associates in life. And oh, well, we should just go hang out in all of these places that are evil places or places that are filled with sin, and that's where we should hang out as believers in order to be a light to the world. The, the Bible doesn't teach that. You can't find a single example in the ministry of Jesus where Jesus was in a deep, committed, ongoing relationship with somebody who just hated Jesus or who hated God or who hated the Word of God. Now, Jesus certainly took people who started there and converted them and brought them along to a place of embracing him as a savior. But Jesus' closest associates, as should ours be, were people who wanted to follow him, who wanted to know the Lord, who sought to live lives that were pleasing to God. And so we should all be asking ourselves as we're circumspect, what circles am I trying to run in? Whose table do I want to sit around? Whose counsel do I want to look to? Whose life do I want to imitate? Whose friendship do I want to deepen? It's an important question for all of us to consider. As we move through the prayer into the next verses, 6 through 8, David is now going to demonstrate his integrity positively. Okay, that was his negative demonstration of it. I don't associate with these people at the most intimate level. But now he's going to demonstrate this positively. And the first thing we see there is that he pursues innocence. He writes in verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. Now, some scholars see Psalm 26 as an entrance liturgy. 
into temple worship. That this would have been a prayer that David used and other Israelites used after him as a prayer to prepare themselves to enter into the temple and worship the Lord. And verses 6 and 12 have a temple, 6 through 12 have a temple setting. But while that's possible, it does not have to be read as something that David is presently doing. Verses 6 through 12, that he is presently worshiping in the temple. It could just as easily be read as a contrast to what David talked about in verses 4 and 5. Here's what I mean. Again, in those verses 4 and 5, David essentially says before the Lord, Lord, I am not associating with those people over there. And now what he wants to say in these next verses is, instead, what you see in my life, Lord, is that I want to be in your house, in your presence, with your people. That David's just telling the Lord, again, what's true about his life, where he's at, what he loves, what he's pursuing. Those people over there, according to verses 9 and 10, are bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices. But look at it in verse 6. David says, but for me, I wash my hands in innocence. Again, this is a contrast between these people and David and the righteous. Now, the alternative to washing your hands in innocence would be to have your hands covered in blood. These other men were bloodthirsty. Their hands were uh, filled with evil devices. You'll remember that just before handing Jesus over to be crucified, Pilate, the Roman governor, knowing that the crowd was demanding Jesus' blood, what did he do? He took a basin of water, fresh water, and he dips his hands in it, and he washes his hands in front of them, and then he makes this statement in Matthew 27, 24. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. That was a declaration Pilate was trying to make. He was wanting to distance himself from any responsibility in the death of Jesus and say, Look, I'm innocent of this. I'm washing my hands in innocence. Of course, Pilate did bear some guilt there. But that was the point. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, remember the question was asked, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And here comes the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now that's the kind of person that David sought to be. That David was looking at his life and saying, Lord, I seek to live a life of innocence before you. I'm not maliciously trying to hurt other people or uh, do evil in the world. I'm trying to live a life of righteousness and innocence. Now the third thing that David could point to, so it was that he avoided the wicked, that he was a man who pursued innocence, And now third, what David could point to was that he delights in forgiveness. We see this in verse 6 and 7. David there in verse 6, he says, I wash my hands in innocence. And then he says, and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. So David is saying, look, when I'm in the tabernacle, And I come to you in this sincerity. I circle around the altar. And as I do, I worship. I find my heart stirred to offer thanksgiving and praise and worship. Now remember, the altar is the place where the sacrifice was made for the sins of the people. And David is delighting in that reality as he approaches the altar and he sees 
a sacrifice that was made for his sins, it evokes worship and praise in his heart. This is where his delight is rooted in the fact that God had forgiven his sins. And this is such an important thing for us to notice. That the response of worship, the response of praise, the catalyst for delight in David's life was a sacrifice that was made for his sins. Now the sacrifice has changed between what was offered on the altar for David's sins and what was offered on a more significant altar for our sins. But the way that this works has not changed. As you and I, as Christians today, as we look to the cross where Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away our sins, where Jesus' arms were stretched out and he was nailed to that cross, and his blood poured out to wash away our sins, as we look to that, it stirs up praise and worship and love in our hearts. This is why it is so important for us as a church to always and forever keep the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ central in all we do. If what we're trying to do to ignite a fire of love and worship in our hearts for God is talk about how, hey, if you come to Jesus, you can have a great marriage, which is true. Or if we try to make the main thing that if you come to Jesus... He can help fix broken relationships in your life, which is true. Or if we talk about, if you come to Jesus and there's spiritual power available to you and you can have gifts of the Spirit and all of those things, which is true. If we make any of that the central thing, guess what? Your passion for Jesus will dwindle over time. The only thing powerful enough to maintain and sustain zeal for the Lord and love for the Lord and worship through all of the seasons of your life, is looking to the cross of Christ and saying, look at what Jesus has done for me. He bled and he died and my sins are washed away and now I have relationship with God forever. If we want our hearts ablaze with worship and love for God, we must warm them with the embers of the cross. There's no other way forward. Now the final verse in this section, verse 8, gives us the fourth thing that David could point to that demonstrates that he is this man of integrity. And it's in verse 8, and it's this, that he delights in God's presence. David says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. This idea that the temple in the Old Testament was where God's glory dwelt, communicates a deeper reality that that's where God's presence was located in a unique and powerful way. So David is essentially saying in verse 8 that he loves the temple. He loves the place where God's presence is. David loves God's presence. He delights in God's presence. Remember Psalm 1611, where David could write there that it's in your presence that David knows is fullness of joy. That was the delight of his heart. I just want to be in your presence. In Psalm 84, David could say, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. This is where I want to be. This is what enlivens my heart. Now family, we can never forget 
that in the New Testament, there is a dramatic shift that takes place in where God's presence dwells. In John 1, verse 14, John famously writes about Jesus, the eternal word of God. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tabernacled among us. It's a direct allusion to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That that the word now became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says, and we have seen his glory. This is what David delighted in. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The ancient Israelites, no matter where they lived, they longed to be at the temple. They wanted to be in the place where God's presence was and God's glory was felt. But on this side of the life and ministry of Christ, the way that we can tell if we love God's presence is by asking, do I long to be in Christ? Is the thing that enlivens my heart abiding in Christ? Walking with Him, enjoying Him, being in fellowship with Him, being in His presence. As you examine your heart this morning, one of the most important things to ask is, what is it that I love most? What is the thing that I delight in the most in this world? Now, there's nothing wrong with delighting in all of the good gifts that God's given us. In fact, there's something perfectly right about doing that. But the deepest thing that we all have to try to get underneath is, well, what, what's, the, what's the thing I actually love the most? What's the thing that I long for the most? Is it Jesus and abiding in him now and the hope that one day he will return for me and I will see him face to face? David, this man of integrity, could say before the Lord, Lord, look into my heart. God, you know that the thing that I love is your presence. Now, verses 9 and 10 might seem a little disconnected from that thought, but they're not. Actually, they're just the other side of the same coin. David is saying, as I just mentioned in verse 8, I love your presence, O Lord. So now he says in 9 and 10, please never sweep my soul away with sinners. Lord, this is what I love the most, your presence. So please don't remove me from your presence. Don't ever, ever let that happen to me. Ryan pointed out that this reminds us once again of Psalm 1. In verse 4 of Psalm 1, we read, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. In Psalm 1, David there talked about how it's the righteous who ultimately are known by God and will dwell in God's presence forever, but not the wicked. They're like the chaff, which is sort of the kernel or the shell on wheat. And it's light. And a nice breeze would just carry the chaff away. And David here is saying, don't don't let my soul be swept away from your presence with sinners, with people who don't love you or regard you or trust you, Lord. Please don't let that happen. Why? Again, because your presence is all that I really want. There's a song, a worship song that says, give me Jesus. Most of you know it. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And at the end of the day, for every child of God, when we strip back all the other stuff, our beautiful families, success, leisure, hobbies, when we strip all of that away, every true child of God 
should be able to say, Lord, you can have all the world. Everything else could go. But just give me you. Just give me Jesus. Now, David could have ended his prayer here. And it would have been beautiful. That was a really good, like, conclusion right there. But he goes on for two more verses, or three more verses, rather. Two more. Up to this point, David has spoken of his life from the past to the present. But he said nothing of the future. Where is this life of faithfulness, this life of integrity headed once David comes out of his prayer closet? Well, that's what he's going to get into in verses 11 and 12. He says, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This psalm actually ends with a determination for future integrity. David is able to look forward and declare to the Lord that, that what he is determined to do is to keep living this life of integrity. Back in verse 1, it was, I have, past tense, walked in my integrity. Now in verse 11, he says, I shall, or I will, future tense, walk in my integrity. This is David's commitment. This is David's focus. This is David's belief about where he's going in his life. Now, this can sound to our ears like an unhealthy self-confidence. Lord, I got this. Look at what I've got going on. I'm a man of integrity. I'm doing the right things. I've made the right sorts of decisions, and I'm never going to stop. Nothing could ever happen to me. It could sound like unhealthy self-confidence. A little bit like Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter could look at our Lord and say, even if all these other disciples, even if all of them abandon you, Lord, not me, I'm the rock. Remember, I'm Peter the rock. I'm going nowhere. And Jesus had to look at Peter and say, Peter, before the rooster crows, three, or before the rooster crows you're going to deny me three times. That was an ungodly, unhealthy self-confidence. But that is not where David's at in verses 11 and 12. Derek Kidner, the esteemed Old Testament scholar, reminds us that what David is demonstrating here is loyalty, not self-confidence. And we know that because look at the humility of the second part of verse 11. David in the second part of the verse says, redeem me and be gracious to me. David is saying, I will walk in integrity going forward, but only if and only because of what you're going to do for me. That you redeem me, you rescue me, you deliver me, and you extend grace to me. You're gracious to me, Lord. David knows that he has no way of compelling God to love him. He has no way of compelling God to bless him and protect him through the rest of his life. David must fall on the grace of God like every single one of us. But thankfully, that's exactly what God offers us in Christ. He offers us an abundance of grace that we can never exhaust. Ryan began our service in Ephesians chapter 2. What did verses 8 and 9 tell us? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The way that God set the whole thing up for us in salvation is that he would be the one 
who has to own the responsibility to carry us to the finish line. He saves us by His grace, and He continues saving us by His grace and bringing us to glory. It's all about what He's done from start to finish. The Christian life is a life that's lived by the grace of God from beginning to end, from A to Z. We never take ownership, if you want to say it that way, of our salvation. We're always in a posture of dependence on the grace and the power and the saving of our God. So like David, we can say, I will walk in my integrity. You can leave this church if you're in Christ by faith, and you can say, with integrity before the Lord, I will walk in my integrity. But it's not because we have confidence in ourselves. It's because we have confidence in Him. We have confidence, like Paul, to be able to say that we are sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Paul's confidence was not, well, I'm confident that you guys are going to make it to the finish line. He was confident that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion. Now verse 12, we'll finish here. Of course we'll finish here. There's no 13. It's an interesting verse because it can be taken two different ways. Here's the verse. He says, My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Now, on one hand, it could mean that as David closes his prayer, he sees himself secure. He sees himself standing on level ground. And, and this, this could be true, especially in light of verse 1. In verse 1, the ESV doesn't capture this, but in verse 1, when it says, without wavering, literally in the Hebrew, that means, I shall not slip. And so it could be, as David now comes to the end of the prayer, that was the beginning of the end, it could be that he's saying the same thing, essentially. I'm on stable, level ground now. My feet will not slip because of God's grace. On the other hand, though, it could mean that David who, as we just talked about, is ultimately in need of grace, ultimately in need of God's work in his life, he's on level ground with every other Israelite in the temple. Although he's the king, although he's constantly looked at as the one who's on high, seated on the throne in a whole different category than everybody else, when it really boils down to it, and David is Brought before God Almighty, David says, look, in the temple, we're all just standing on level ground. There's no pecking order. There's no hierarchy. We all come by grace through faith. Of course, it's been well said for many centuries that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That when we are in Christ, again, there is no pecking order. There is no VIP suite that some people get ushered off into. When it comes to the kingdom of God, we are all children. We're all sons and daughters and therefore brothers through faith in Jesus Christ. I like to think that maybe verse 12 means both. Because both of those things are true. And both of those things are beautiful gospel reflections. That because of our faith in Christ and because of God's grace toward us, we are stable. 
we will make it to the finish line. But also, that because it's always about the grace of God, we are all on level footing before God. That every single one of us are coming through the exact same doorway. And it's a doorway where we're invited by grace to put our faith in Christ. The one who lived to be our righteousness and the one who died for our forgiveness. And the one who rose again to give us eternal life. Well, regardless of what verse 12 means, in this great assembly, the assembly of the righteous, the assembly of the ones who truly fear God and live by faith in Him, David is choosing to bless the Lord. David rises from this prayer with a commitment to living a life of integrity, depending on God's grace, and worshiping God with the community of the faithful. And what a great picture of what the Christian life should be. It's not that complicated. It's a life that says, Lord, I'm trusting in you. I'm committed to living in sincerity and integrity. And I'm committed to being with your people, singing your praises until you call me home. If all of us could just be committed to those three things, oh, how much of the grace of God we would experience in our lives. And we would see God carry us to the finish line. There's so much for each of us to learn, I believe, from this prayer this morning. But perhaps the most important thing we can take away is this simple question. I'm not going to say if the Lord. I'm going to say as the Lord examines your heart and your mind. Because the Spirit of God is always doing that. So as He is examining your heart and your mind this morning, what is He finding? What does God see? Don't worry about what other people see, because we're all great pretenders. What is God seeing when he looks at your heart and your mind? Is God finding that person of integrity? Again, not perfection. A person of sincerity, with their, art, their heart opened to him in faith and in trust, depending on his grace from this day forward. If he is, praise God. If that's what God finds, praise God. If that's not what God finds, guess what? This morning, God has brought you here for the express purpose of telling you or perhaps reminding you that his grace is available to you. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to do anything but come like David. Just come sincerely today, dependent on him, saying, Lord, I've got nothing to bring. I have no demand I can make on you for acceptance or love or grace, but I trust that you offer it to me today in Christ. And if that's how you walk out of this church today, with that being what's in your heart, guess what? You have God's forgiveness, you have God's love, and you have the hope that he'll never, ever leave you or forsake you. Let's pray.